beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK 90.7 FM in Southern California. And, of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org, kpfk.org, or podcast on all platforms, too. And I really appreciate you being with us today. Hope you'll make it a habit to join us every Tuesday at 1 in the afternoon. I am real excited about today's show. My guest is the author of a book I read, I think probably four years ago or so, called Proof of Heaven. And he is by trade a neurosurgeon, a brain surgeon, right? And reading his book reminded me of the experiences I read about, and many of you may have seen that video by Jill Bolta-Taylor, about her experience during a stroke. And Dr. Alexander is going to tell us a story today of his experience. I suppose we could call an NDE, a near-death experience. It read to me more like a death experience, nothing near about it, except that there was a body that was being kept alive for a week. And surprisingly, he came back from this experience. This was 2008. And somehow learned to speak and move and talk. And he's with us today. Dr. Evan Alexander, the author of Proof of Heaven and more recently, Living in a Mindful Universe. Is that the title of it? That's it. Well, listen, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK in Los Angeles. Well, Michael, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be with you today. Well, Again, I seriously am excited about doing this because it's it's almost like I'm able to talk to somebody who's been there, who crossed over and came back. And in my life, I've read a number of accounts and watched videos of people who have made similar claims. But I must say, with your background and your credibility as a medical doctor and a neurosurgeon at that, it uh, carries extra weight. So I'd like you to summarize just the briefest details for our audience who may not have heard of you or know you. Uh, What happened to you in 2008 that uh, led to this life-changing event? Well, thank you. And it's important to point out to people that, you know, it was really the, the medical details of my illness that make the case so fascinating to the scientific community. Uh, they they really don't care that I was a neurosurgeon, an MD, Harvard Medical School. I mean, it's a big so what. What they care about is the documented damage to my brain when I went through this uh, week-long coma, uh, because that damage was so extensive that I should have had no experience at all. I mean, the parts of brain that would have been uh, responsible for generating a hallucination or dream, my neocortex, was uh, too heavily damaged to have allowed any of that kind of thing to happen. And uh, so fascinating, you bring up Jill Bolte-Taylor's 
story because uh, to me, hers was uh, a big key to understanding my experience uh, at the very beginning. I read her book. Uh, I realized she had had a vascular malformation uh, destroy her linguistic center in her brain. And that was enough for her to sense this oneness with the universe. Uh, and, and it's extraordinary. But my case was simply where if you take the whole neocortex offline, and in fact, my brain stem was badly damaged, that's what you get, which is an extraordinary, ultra real experience. It just was proof beyond doubt that our brain does not create consciousness so much as filter it in. So to get back to your question, what did I go through that week uh, in coma? Important to point out that one of the hallmarks of my particular journey, which is atypical for near-death experiences, is that I was amnesic, that I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life. I had no words, no language, no knowledge of Earth, this universe. I really had an empty slate. And, of course, in the first few months after I came back, I explained all that with my conventional neuroscientific understanding of how important the neocortex is in you know bringing our human phenomenal awareness to life. And I knew my cortex had been badly damaged. Uh, and But the, the big thing that shocked me no end was the full recovery. That part really goes beyond Western medical explanation. But again, the uh, the fact that I was uh, had all the uh, documented features, there's a case report on my medical records that people can access uh, that was written by three physicians not involved in my care. And they really kind of hammered home how deathly ill I was, how uh, unlikely to have any kind of survival. And yet uh, I made full recovery over two months. So it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course, unresponsive realm, like being in dirty jello. And I had no body awareness during any part of any of this. Uh, but I was a speck of awareness. I kind of noted things around me. And so in this earthworm's eye view, as I called it, uh, it was just a murky and seemed to go forever environment. But I was rescued by this slowly spinning white light uh, that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. And of course, that has become a tremendous theme for me. I realized how much music, sound, vibration, frequency enables our souls to traverse those realms. Now, of course, I'm not talking about music that is heard with ears. I'm not talking about anything that is seen with eyes. Our modes of knowing in that realm are much different. They're far more complete. It's what I call knowledge through identification, where we actually become huge swathes of the scene as a mode of learning and kind of teaching about all that. And so this spinning melody that approached me in this murky darkness of the earthworm's eye view opened up like a rip in the fabric of that uh, that ugly realm, and it led up into this brilliant, ultra-real gateway valley that was lush with life, absolutely uh, beautiful beyond description. I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. There were millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in these vast formations uh, above this meadow. And I remember uh, gazing down at this meadow from the butterfly and uh, seeing thousands of beings down there. And there was lots of dancing and joy and, and merriment and children playing and dogs jumping, incredible festivities. And all of it was being fueled because up above, were these swooping orbs, these pure kind of oval forms of spiritual beings. When I wrote it all up weeks later, you know, when my language was returning to me, I called them angelic choirs. And it was the chants and anthems and hymns that were thundering through me uh, from those swooping uh, angelic choirs above uh, that really fueled this incredible vision of what I had of a perfect world. I, I, I liken it to Plato's world of ideals, I was having this incredible sense of all the wonders of that realm. Very important to point out that there was no death or decay anywhere. 
Uh, it was absolutely this beautiful world of ideals for the, for the soul, really. For, it's where we would reunite with our higher soul, with souls of departed loved ones and plan next incarnations. All of those kind of things would happen in, in this uh, Gateway Valley environment. And I remember this soft summer breeze that blew through while I was there on the butterfly wing. And that breeze, I described it in my writings weeks later, it was the breath of God or the divine wind. It was my first knowing in that, uh, you know, here I was amnesic for anything before. So I was learning everything anew in this realm with this tabula rasa. And uh, that breath of God was my first awareness of the divine through every bit of that. And I knew that that divine uh, influenced all the way down into the lower kind of material realms, the denser realms that I had left behind. But also there was a, a this this uh, gateway valley, just as I say, is a gateway. It was not the be-all and end-all ultimate destination of my journey. But it was very important. And that sense of, of the divine was uh, absolutely astonishing, refreshing, and revealing because of its extremely personal nature. I tried to convey that in the book Proof of Heaven that, you know, so many of us, we hear these journeys, uh, you know, and, and reuniting with God and this infinitely loving and healing force. But the shocking thing to me was how it was very deeply personal. And I think that's one of the most profound lessons of this kind of awakening of humanity uh, to modern consciousness is realizing that that God force that has been so well described by prophets, mystics, seekers going back thousands of years across all belief systems. They're really reporting very kind of similar things as much as religions will take those messages from the prophets and try and differentiate them and try and apply, you know, scripture and orthodoxy over the top of it. But deep down at the core, in the meditative traditions of all the great faiths, there's a certain amount of agreement about oneness, about acceptance, mercy, compassion, love, that we're all truly in this together. And it's a real all-encompassing oneness. In other words, it's not just about human beings and not just about human consciousness, but a much deeper admission of the basically the consciousness of all life and how life and sentience go hand in hand. Uh, and it was a, kind of an extraordinary uh, witnessing of all this to become one with that. And that's what happened as those angelic choirs provided yet another portal because uh, my journey was not over. I, I lifted up out of this gateway valley. Uh, important to point out, though, before I leave that part of the story, that even on my first pass, because I passed through all these realms multiple times, but even my first pass after that beautiful um, recognition of the divine wind, I, I was uh, then became acquainted with this beautiful young woman on the butterfly wing. And of course, those who've read the book Proof of Heaven realize she plays a crucial role much later. Uh, she played a crucial role right there as far as I was concerned. Her message to me, I believe, was the central message for all uh, in this world that I was to bring back. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You are cared for. You have nothing to fear. Uh, it was a very profound, welcoming uh, message that basically told me I was home. And that was the feeling I had there in that core realm. And the core was, uh, that was that kind of uh, ultimate destination that I went to through the uh, portal that was provided through those angelic choirs in the Gateway Valley. And, and in that process, I saw all of the lower material realms collapsing down, all of the spiritual realm that I'd encountered in the Gateway Valley uh, collapsing down. With and, and I'll point out that there's a whole different ordering of time and causality in that spiritual realm. 
because in fact, our experience of time in this realm is very much a fiction. It's part of what allows the drama to unfold, but it is not an ultimate keeper of basically causality and the growth of souls and the evolution of all consciousness. That is something much better marked in that deep time which is really only visible from that spiritual realm. And for example, when people go through life reviews, uh, the, the events of your life, the important ones that still hold residual lessons, come to you in very profound, ultra-real fashion. And boom, 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 they're coming, uh, you know, even if you have a cardiac arrest and you're only away for four minutes from, you know, the material realm, you have a very complete life review uh, that is not limited by those four minutes of earth time. And I think that's the important thing to understand is the life review shows us very clearly that the events of our life in many ways can be presented to us to serve as lessons, whether it's in this long narrative of our lifetime or in the life review where you basically go back through the main residual teaching points that are still to be utilized in that uh, life. And an important part of understanding all of this of course, is that a tremendous lesson I learned and one that we've amplified on for the 12 years since my coma is my my old Christian thinking, I was brought up in a Methodist church, of one life and eternal heaven or hell does not fit any of this reality. We come back again and again. Reincarnation is an absolutely essential part of the soul journey. You cannot do this in one lifetime. And I think for me, one of the shockers when I got back here was finding all the scientific evidence for reincarnation. But anyway, back to my story in that core realm, uh, I was uh, told, you know, many things and and told you'll be going back. You're not here to stay, but we'll teach you uh, so much to help you in your journey. And then I would spontaneously kind of tumble back down to that earthworm eye view. That was a big mystery to me. But the good news is I learned very quickly that by remembering the musical notes, of the melody, I was able to conjure up that slowly spinning portal of light. And that's what would take me back up into the Gateway Valley. Uh, always welcome there by that beautiful young woman on the butterfly wing. Uh, also witnessing thousands of beings down below us dancing. All that joy and merriment. Uh, and uh, that was uh, incredibly rich to me because of all of the the sense of oneness, of an, of resonance and connection with other beings, and not just humans, but really with all of life, an extraordinary lesson. And then, of course, those angelic choirs would provide a portal up yet again into that, uh, that uh, core realm where the entire higher-dimensional multiverse was collapsed down into this complex oversphere as part of the lessons. So that core realm was completely beyond anything that we would call space and time, all of eternity easily contained within it, all of higher-dimensional space, but a deep sense of how our lives unfold in this interesting fashion of serving as learning and teaching. But most of the lessons occur from this realm. We don't really learn so much from that realm as much as uh, other than having that life review and how it guides us to structure the hardships of the next life, really. That's what happens in the life review. And uh, for me, uh, the other beautiful lesson of a life review is not only that our notion of time flow in this realm is very much a fiction, that there's a much deeper ordering of time from the perspective of the spiritual, but also that the boundaries of self are not what we would think. In the life review, most near-death experiencers will tell you you live through it and you witness the emotional perspective of those around you affected by your thoughts and actions. So in other words, the life review is not your own personal remembrance of, of those events as much as experiencing it from the perspective of others who were affected by your thoughts and actions.
So the life review is a beautiful example of how the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, is written into the very fabric of the universe. Because in that life review, we find that how we treated others is reflected back to us in those moments. So if you handed out a lot of pain and suffering to others in your life, don't be surprised when in your life review, you get on the business end of that, the receiving end. You feel what it felt like to be dealt those kinds of actions. Uh, and that's why it serves to remind us, treat others with respect and dignity. This speaks to the whole idea of the meaning and purpose of life. And I don't mean to conflate those terms. I think they're two different things, but I'm curious. It's been, what, 13 years since you had this experience. What have you come to understand about the purpose of life and perhaps additionally its meaning? Well, I would say it's really, um, I, I love quoting that uh, quote over the entrance to the Temple of the Oracle at Delphi in Greece. It says, know thyself. And I believe that essentially we are all here to follow that edict. But the interesting thing is when you realize this, especially the emerging kind of scientific vision of consciousness as being unified, we're all connected through that one mind, just as I witnessed in the core realm, that connectedness, those boundaries of self just disappear, and we're all truly in this together. Um, but this one mind concept goes much further and really implies that each and every one of us is a repository for the mind of the universe, of that God force. And so know thyself uh, is actually quite a tall order because it, it involves coming to a much deeper and richer, comfortable understanding of the oneness we share with the universe in terms of existence and in terms of meaning and purpose to that existence. So it really is about uh, coming to a much richer and deeper understanding of the nature of reality, of our connection with others, with the universe at large. And I would say that that lesson now, and, and maybe the, the lesson for all of humanity over the last many thousands of years and extending into the future, uh, you know, I don't know how, how long until we graduate to the next lesson, but the current lesson for humanity uh, of these uh, particular uh, epochs is one of unification and knowing the oneness of mind and how we're all truly in this together, bound through the forces of love, compassion, kindness, uh, mercy, when necessary, forgiveness. It's really about unification, which means that it's time to uh, basically move beyond what I would say was a lot of the lesson I grew up with and a lot of people, I think, in the 20th century, this notion of kind of separation having enough resources, et cetera. So this uh, kind of misinterpreted version of Darwinian selection and competition, uh, kind of a misinterpretation of reductive materialism and the false sense of separation. It's really a lesson of oneness. And not only that, of coming to see how much wholeness and healing we can bring into this world, into our lives individually, into our lives collectively. Uh, this is much more about kind of unification and growing together and helping each other than any kind of uh, separation and, uh, you know, all the problems that come with that false sense of separation, like economic polarization, where all the uh, wealth is, is concentrated in this tiny fraction of a percent. A lot of our judicial systems, a lot of our market systems, I mean, a lot of this world is kind of set up to reflect 
a kind of a competition and a not being there to collaborate and help each other. And that's where I believe that this deep lesson of science about the nature of consciousness, the nature of reality, it proves, you know, NDEs is kind of the tip of the spear, uh, as they have been for thousands of years in illuminating our knowledge of worlds beyond the physical. That's where this world needs to mature and grow up. And that's why I would say this whole awakening, this revolution is happening. You know, we call ourselves homo sapiens. Sapiens means wise. Well, when I look around at this world, you know, I can see some wisdom, uh, some of the benefits of science and technology and medicine, communication, things like that. But I see a lot of the ugly underbelly of that divorce of intellectual and scientific technological capability from our human spirit. And I would say that divorce became quite complete uh, in the late 1800s with advances in science and rationalism and all this that left behind our spiritual nature uh, in many dangerous ways. But the reality is it's time for us to truly become wise. And that means it's time to annul that divorce uh, between our scientific technological capabilities and our spiritual side. We have a structure in the brain known as the amygdala, probably best referred to as the fight or flight center. And I have to take a short break, doctor, but when we come back, let's talk about the impact of the amygdala and the fear that we experience by any name, stress, anxiety, worry, doubt, mild apprehension or panic, right? That I think promotes this illusion of separateness. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and my guest is Dr. Eben Alexander, author of Proof of Heaven and Living in a Mindful Universe. And we'll be right back. Stay with us. This is KPFK. KPFK's Spring Fun Drive is over and we are now back to regular programming. Yes, it has been a long one. And we thank you so much for your heroic support and contributions large and small. That's it. We just want to acknowledge you and say thank you. And we're back with Dr. Eben Alexander, author of Proof of Heaven and living in a mindful universe. Let's talk about this amygdala. Fear has fascinated me throughout my life. The way it, probably more than anything else, represents not danger so much as anything we don't really understand. And I think evidence of that is found in the more we understand about a situation and the more we understand about ourselves, the less fear we experience, even if the danger remains consistent. But one of the horrific, I'll say, side effects of counseling fear is the way it promotes the idea of separation, this illusion that there is someone here called the other. And I understand the role of that in allowing us to survive through evolution to this point. But it seems now we're at a point where we need to transcend that and work toward what you're describing, which is a unification or at least a harmonizing. I mean, 
we don't want to all be exactly alike, so maybe unified is not quite the right word, but at least a harmonious approach to a sense of we're all in this together, a rising tide lifts all boats, you know, however you want to say it. It seems odd to me that people cling to self-interest as if there is no self-interest in mutual interest. What do I lose if I care about what's good for everyone? (laughs) Why do you think that's so hard for folks to see? You're making some excellent points. I mean, it turns out that, you know, when you look at the animal kingdom, the kind of wild kingdom in general, you know, fear is an important way to preserve an animal's integrity. I mean, one needs to kind of learn their certain instinctual fears, etc. So they do play a role in kind of the the predator-prey dance of the wild kingdom. But, you know, we don't necessarily as human beings live in that same wild kingdom. Uh, And we're not the same kind of threat to each other, at least we shouldn't be. And I think you're bringing up the amygdala is a very uh, kind of interesting concept because, uh, yes, it is important for survival of a body, you know, in an animal, in a world where animals eat other animals, things like that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're all spiritual beings and human beings have gotten to a point where we don't necessarily have to dance the predator prey dance every day as if we're going to be eaten alive for lunch if we're not careful about that shadow over our head or what have you. So it's really about coming to assess, you know, who we are today, what we're trying to accomplish, what our kind of understanding of reality is. And that does not necessitate that same fear-based kind of way of viewing the world. Uh, I think it's especially important to point out how uh, damaging certain traumatic events that give us a fear, uh, like traumatic childhood events or, say, early life, like as a soldier in combat or something like that, you can come away with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is this repeating cycle where we've really kind of lost uh, track of any true threats or dangers and and our uh, kind of amygdala and, and parts of our brain and mind are running this system that is, can be very counterproductive. You know, there's a lot of work being done recently with magic mushroom psilocybin as a therapeutic intervention for both the fear of death and cancer patients and for severe addictions like nicotine, alcohol, opiates, etc., one dose or two doses of psilocybin in a proper therapeutic setting can cure people for months or years on end. And my argument is you're not taking the psilocybin every day to do this. You only take it once or twice. And I would say that's the same as using meditation, connecting with your higher soul uh, in, in coming to a deeper understanding of self and your ability to basically heal yourself. And and I believe it's time for all of us to move beyond uh, these uh, uh, fears and conflicts with each other because in many ways they are a false narrative that our society teaches us, and yet at a deep level we can discover are not really true, especially with this emerging science of consciousness, the oneness, the resonance, the synthesis, the connectedness that we share is something that comes out as a very basic ingredient of the universe as revealed to us through these experiences, just like near-death experiences or shared-death experiences, which are just like near-death, but they happen in perfectly healthy people who are usually the relative of someone who is dying or leaving the physical plane. And yet the relative 
uh, you know, the dying relative, their soul goes on this journey and they can even take along the soul of a bystander of a, you know, a, a loved one who might be a thousand miles away when they pass over. But in the shared death experience, they have this beautiful shared uh, processing, including even seeing a full blown life review before that bystander soul comes back to this world. That's interesting. It's like uh, the sympathy pain that dad may feel when mom goes into labor. Right. That whole process of pseudocesis, as it's called, you know, where the dad kind of feigns pregnancy, too. (laughs) But you're right. It's uh, in a shared death experience. It's profound. I mean, people have a full blown near death experience, but it's not their own. It's of a loved one who's leaving this world. Uh, And I've heard many of those shared death experience cases. Of course, they completely obliterate the materialist pseudo explanations of, oh, it's decreased oxygen in the brain of the near-death experience or increased CO2 or what have you. None of that is relevant, has nothing to do with what's going on. Well, that brings us to the next logical step in our discussion. We've talked about the destruction of your neocortex. We've talked about this cluster of neurons known as the amygdala. There is a presumption, of course, in material science that consciousness is an epiphenomena of brain chemistry. You are trained to believe that at Harvard Medical School. You, you, you had a practice for many years. Now you flip that on its head like every other mystic and see all that appears as a phenomena of consciousness. Explain that that 180 to us, that reversal of cause and effect. Well, it was crystal clear for my journey, especially as I went, you know, initially I was my own worst skeptic. I thought, wow, my doctors told me the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. And of course, I didn't have any of my neurosurgical knowledge when I came back. In fact, when I woke up in that ICU room on day seven of coma, I didn't even recognize my mother, my sons, my sisters, my former spouse at the bedside. I had no idea who they were. My brain was savaged by the encounter. And it took two months for all of my mental function to return and all my memories and all that. So uh, it was just an extraordinary thing to go through. But it showed me that memories are not stored in the brain. And it showed me that profound enhanced consciousness can occur when the brain is taken offline. In fact, there uh, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we talk about that in great detail. Modern studies of psychedelics uh, like LSD, psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, DMT, etc., um, how, in fact, if you use fMRI or magnetoencephalography to study the brains of people under the influence of such powerful um, entheogens, I would call them, uh, you find the brain goes dark. Every part of the brain gets progressively less active. The neurons basically get out of the way. It's a perfect example. We talk about that a lot in Living in a Mindful Universe. It's an extraordinary finding. Of course, materialist neuroscientists have no idea where to go with this. Uh, But it just shows us that if in a true scientific investigation of consciousness, we must move beyond the brain because the brain is not the be-all and end-all of where it's all happening. Uh, You know, I recognize that from my experience. We talk about it a lot in the book. Uh, For example, there's a whole tremendous cadre of information coming from parapsychology, evidence of non-local consciousness, that telepathy is real, uh, that precognition, that in many ways we we seem to be able to sense the future, at least a few seconds or minutes in the future, Uh, presentiment, where our autonomic nervous system can sense the future. Uh, things like that. And then, of course, you have psychokinesis, where certain people can manipulate physical matter with their mind. You've got distance healing. You've got the power of prayer. 
Um, you've got um, near-death experiences, shared death experiences, after-death communications, which are probably occurring about 40% of Americans have had uh, an after-death communication that hinted to them that the spiritual realm is absolutely real. And then, of course, you've got that huge body of literature on past life memories in children, uh, suggestive of reincarnation. If you go to uvadops.org, that's the Division of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia, uh, and start reading their papers and books. They've studied more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children where the best explanation is of reincarnation. So in, in the year 2021, any uh, scientist discussing consciousness must be fully conversant, not only in the realities of the afterlife, near-death experiences, shared death experiences, after-death communications of psychic mediums and their uh, communications with the dead, but also reincarnation. The evidence is overwhelming that it's real. It's what is human experience. As we move forward over the next few decades, all this will be borne out, and of course the world will deal with it. Right now we're still at that cutting edge where a lot of people still don't understand that the modern science of consciousness is very uh, powerfully supportive of this notion of one mind. Uh, the ultimate arbiter there really is quantum physics, which in many ways quantum physicists knew 80 years ago that consciousness seemed to be a unifying principle of the universe and not something derivative from consciousness. You know, Wolfgang Pauli and uh, uh, Dirac and uh, uh, Eugene Wigner and there are many quantum physicists, or uh, Schrodinger, uh, who made statements about how the experiment showed consciousness to be kind of a fundamental aspect of the universe. And we talk about that a lot more again in Living in a Mindful Universe. But this is all the way, the way to the future. The science of consciousness is very clear on what is evolving here. Entanglement seems to be the quantum physics version of spiritual unity. Of connection, of, you know, entanglement is, is a beautiful example of kind of entangled minds. Uh, a good friend of ours, Dean Radin, wrote a beautiful book called Entangled Minds, which focuses on exactly that set of principles, that entanglement is revealed in quantum physics in many ways, is also revealed through our kind of telepathic connections and empathic connections with others. Yeah, I can hear the old mystics saying, told you so. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, they were right. And see, that's the interesting thing is this is the leading edge of science in the current era. And yet in many ways, all it shows us is that there was profound wisdom about the deep truth of the universe, you know, four and five thousand years ago. If you go back to Egypt and, uh, you know, other ancient civilizations, uh, there was tremendous wisdom about this. And in many ways, a lot of that knowledge has been lost. So again, you're a neurosurgeon by trade. The brain, it turns out, is not the source, but more of a filter. Exactly. And we make that point in our book. We talk a lot about how not only is your conscious awareness not produced by the brain, but it's filtered in by the brain. But likewise, memory. Memory is not even stored in the brain. Uh, and of course, that is the final nail in the coffin of materialist neuroscience trying to pretend the brain is the origin of all memory and experience. And yet neurosurgeons have worried about that whole prospect for decades because we know that out of millions of brain resections, there's never been a reported case of any swathe of long-term memories that disappeared after removing any part of the brain. It really completely defies materialist logic completely. And then when you start studying the uh, reincarnation literature, you realize, well, of course, consciousness and memory is not stored in the brain because there's no uh, physical mechanism of brain to preserve memories between one life and the other. 
It turns out only 20% of those cases studied are hereditary, that is, in one family. 80% of them are in different families, this reincarnation story. So you can't even kind of invoke DNA as as your memory mechanism. In, in other words, the memory is stored you know, in the quantum hologram in an information field that we all have access to. Uh, and, and, of course, our own memories, quote, own, are something that we kind of resonate with, and they, they tend, there tend to be kind of a, uh, a viscous line that connects us with memories of our experience over multiple incarnations, I would point out, because uh, the uh, doctors who study past life memories in children will tell you that after age six or seven, those memories disappear. So you, you should harvest them earlier. They're natural processes. Just like we don't remember our dreams, most of us, even though dreams are very important. If you don't dream or sleep for a few weeks, you might die from it, from it all. Uh, likewise, uh, you know, when we're born into this world, uh, children come in here with memories of their past lives and between lives, but those memories are gently kind of subdued and, and, and kind of covered over. Uh, by the other memories of life. And uh, it's interesting that most of us also don't remember our early childhood memories uh, because the same kind of process seems to be at work, and they, they all got kind of covered over at the same time. The word one is interesting because it can refer to all that is or to separate items, this one but not that one. And so religion seems to agree that there is one God, but the monotheist tends to see the one God as separate from its creation, living outside it very far away. The monist, on the other hand, has a more expanded view of oneness, perhaps capitalizing the word awareness or absolute as being completely, absolutely, totally inclusive So in comparing and contrasting these two quite different ideas of oneness, the monotheism of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, where there is one God, but it appears to be sort of that man on the cloud living outside its creation, versus the monism of the East. After your experience and your reflection since, what have you come to understand about that? Well, I just came to see that God force is uh, much more kind of synthesized and one with us. To see ourselves as separate from God is very misleading. And and I take my lead on this thinking not only from my own near-death experience in that core realm where I became one with that infinitely loving God force. And this is not Eben Alexander's little ego becoming one with God. It's this uh, kind of ultimate uh, spiritual essence of self that is identical with that infinitely loving uh, God force. And and so I would say that in many ways, the monists of the East are are closer to the deep truth. Um, and in, in many ways, the, the NDE community can inform modern religions. Uh, there's a book that I often like to promote. It's by a friend of mine, uh, Christopher Kopp, C-O-P-P-E-S. It's called The Essence of Religions. And in that book, he explains how near-death experience uh, uh, writ large, you know, the community of thousands of experiences and the lessons learned from them greatly support uh, kind of looking at the, the deep core of religious faith and coming to see that their meditative traditions are really in many ways overlapping and in agreement. You know, not the superficial dogma and scripture that might disagree, but that, in fact, 
through the experience of the NDE, we come to recognize much more fully our identity with that God force, with that purity of love. And we start to see how that binding force of love unites us all. In many ways, this is what the prophets and mystics, uh, even of the Abrahamic faith, have been trying to teach. Uh, you know, that's what they were originally trying to teach. But in many ways, their uh, teachings might have been kind of manipulated and distorted by other human beings. But uh, the fact of the matter is, I believe that all the the, the prophets and, and, and mystics that were the source of our religious beliefs in many ways would be in agreement about this notion of love, of oneness, of compassion, of kindness, and that we're all in this together. That whole notion of togetherness and no sense of kind of false sense of separation uh, is what is emerging from it. And for me, this whole awakening in the science of consciousness that we're talking about uh, in many ways is this annulment of that divorce to bring our our intellectual and scientific technological capabilities back in alignment with our spiritual nature, but also with that profound realization of how connected we all are. Just as near-death experiencers in their life review, uh, you know, realize that, you know, when they handed out pain and suffering to others in the life review, they feel what they handed out. So those boundaries of self pretty much disappear at that level of the universe. Uh, I came back from my journey realizing that the hardships and difficulties in life are actually gifts. They are the stepping stones that mark a pathway forward uh, in terms of our becoming the soul we came here to be. Uh, and and uh, also the, the realization that evil, darkness and evil, uh, are not like some major opposing force to light and love. They are simply the absence of light and love. And that's why uh, a deep, uh, profound kind of love for self and for others can profess and overcome uh, the apparent conflict when when others might oppose us. Uh, you know, loving others is a tremendous way uh, to overcome any kind of sense of, of darkness and evil and conflict uh, because that love ultimately wins the day. Uh, and the love ultimately, I believe, especially packaged with this revolution and understanding of consciousness and kind of an honoring of NDEs as the tip of the spear and teaching us about uh, the deeper aspects of our nature. That, I believe, is what will change this world for the better. We live in a universe of energy and matter or energy and mass. We could say that spirit and matter, the matter, the mass, that's the objects and of course, they're separate, and we have this awareness that no two objects can occupy the same space at the same time. But if we look at ourselves as energy or spirit, now we're talking about fields, electromagnetic fields, which, you know, if we look at the nature of radio and what we know about electromagnetism, there's flux, there are variations, there are waves and vibrations, there are peaks and troughs, but it's still one field rather than a bunch of separate objects. Maybe all we need to do is think of ourselves as energy instead of these material bodies. Well, I think that's a very good way of looking at it. I often like to think that uh, we're actually more kind of information. We can we consist of a soul line that has a certain memory of experiences and interactions. Uh, and admittedly, this is bigger than just one lifetime. Um, and I believe that that information is something that actually evolves. Uh, so in other words, I would say we, we talked earlier about the reason for existence, you know, know thyself, the purpose of the universe. And I would say in many ways, uh, I love how, 
Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the renowned French paleontologist and Jesuit priest who wrote a, a very influential book in the mid-20th century. It was called The Phenomenon of Man. And that was back during the heyday of discussions about Darwinian evolution and biological systems, all of that. But what he realized was that there is an evolution occurring, but it's much, much bigger than just, you know, individual lines of, of uh, particular animals and plants on Earth that are vying for dominance. You know, he realized that what was evolving was actually consciousness, knowledge, information itself. So in many ways, I would say that, you know, know thyself. And for the individual journey, it's about coming to a deeper understanding of self and relation to the universe. But writ large, what this involves is evolution of all consciousness itself, kind of along the lines of uh, as presented in the phenomenon of man. And I believe that is what is truly going on here is that all of consciousness is evolving. And this is where it becomes much greater than just planet Earth and humans and what we're doing here, uh, where it probably has to do with joining a much bigger club. Uh, and that bigger club is one of of growth into oneness, into this uh, binding force of love. You know, our barbaric actions as warring and violent, conflicted uh, human beings does not warrant inclusion in that kind of a club. So it is time for us to mature and grow beyond our petty little differences and this uh, very kind of barbaric uh, sense of conflict between us that you see rampant in our polarized world today. That is what we need to grow beyond. That's what know thyself ultimately will result in uh, as we come to realize we're all part of this evolution of consciousness. And we'll be right back after this. My guest is Dr. Evan Alexander. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner on KPFK Los Angeles. This is KPFK. Because she understood her language, the next day she quit the job. Huh. She took it off the table. The Aware Show with Lisa Gar. That's fantastic. That's interesting. I love it. It really it. does. It really does show you answers to things. Because she understood the dream, she uh, acted on it like the next morning. How can we expedite that and remember our dreams more? The Aware Show with Lisa Gar, Wednesday and Thursday afternoons at 1. This is KPFK. We're speaking today with the well-known and highly regarded neurosurgeon, Dr. Evan Alexander, about his near-death experience, as detailed in his book, Proof of Heaven. And that brings us to living in a mindful universe, your most recent book. Mindfulness is a practice. Talk about it for a moment, would you? Yes. Well, I, I realized within a year or two of my coma experience, I read more than 150 books about consciousness, quantum physics. I was trying to wrap my head around all this and make sense of it. Uh, and I came to realize pretty early on in that process that if I really wanted to understand my experience, I had to explore consciousness, not just read about it, talk to people about it, think about it, but explore it. And so uh, back in uh, 2011, I took on pretty heavily this uh, daily meditative practice. You know, it was back in that era, luckily, that I encountered my uh, life partner, the co-author of that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, Karen Newell. Karen and I have given workshops uh, around the world uh, on meditation, 
Uh, I use it uh, routinely. A sacred acoustics is uh, the form of binaural beat brainwave entrainment that Karen and her business partner, Kevin Cossey, have developed. Uh, I got involved with them before there was any company, back when they were just toying around with these things and experimenting with them. And I said, you really need to share this with the world. You need to get these tools out there. These are very powerful. And so a lot of what I've done and what Karen and I have done jointly is to help get sacred acoustics out to this world. It's a, a technology, a binaural beat brainwave entrainment was first described in the mid-1800s. At least the phenomenon was by a Prussian physicist who found that a single tone in one ear and a slightly different frequency in the other ear, and somehow the brain generates this wavering signal that's equal to the arithmetic difference between the two input signals. Uh, we explain a lot of that in our book, but you don't need to understand how it works. Just try it out. Uh, listen to these tones. And I believe the reason they have so much power in helping people kind of connect with healing uh, in themselves and uh, a much greater sense of kind of their higher soul and sense of purpose connection with the universe is because uh, as opposed to every other sound you've ever heard, that includes sounds like chants or anthems and hymns that might have engendered a deep transcendental state of conscious awareness. Those were all processed up in the neocortex and the acoustic uh, cortex of the temporal lobes and circuits that have basically uh, arisen in the last few million years in primates and in human beings. Very, very different are the sounds of sacred acoustics and other binaural beat brainwave entrainment because those tones are actually having their main impact down in the lower brainstem at a circuit that arose more than 300 million years ago. That circuit still works. You know, if I hear a finger snap behind my head, that circuit is calculating where that sound is behind me because of the arrival time of the sound hitting my eardrum going a thousand feet per second, but it hits at slightly different times. And you can use that circuit to actually modulate the kind of major uh, flow of, uh, of, of impulses in the brain, the brain stem and the neocortex. And I believe that's what it's doing is by modulating that set of flow, you're, you're freeing conscious awareness. So it's no longer stuck in the mechanisms of the here and now of the physical brain and body, but it's allowed to roam freely. And uh, that's where I think a lot of the power comes from. And that's why we uh, hear so many kind of positive experiences from uh, users of sacred acoustics, because this stuff really has some tremendous power at liberating conscious awareness. There were investigators in the late 20th century that found that binaural beats like Robert Monroe uh, use them to enhance out-of-body experiences. Other investigators who were working with remote viewing, you know, the psychic spy programs of the late 20th century, uh, found that uh, binaural beat brainwave entrainment could enhance remote viewing skills, our ability to discern information, you know, halfway around the world or even across the solar system, as was done with remote viewing. And I believe it's this uh, power of, of influencing that circuit in the lower brainstem that allows us to have such a uh, kind of robust tra traversal of the filter and getting out into primordial mind. Sometimes I think we have this technology that we're like binaural beats and light and sound machines, and we're putting this out into the world without adequate instruction. It's almost like here's a car, but there are no roads, much less highways. And yet, I've come to understand, and, and I wonder how you feel about it, if we just observe, like, okay, I've got this 
Beats CD that I got from Sacred Acoustics, and what am I supposed to do with it? It doesn't come with an owner's manual. Am I supposed to try to do something to make some effort? And I wonder if your advice is, no, just watch what happens. Listen, feel, open yourself to the experience. Well, I believe that we all have uh, tremendous guidance as we establish our connection with that primordial mind and traversing the veil and with uh, kind of that uh, uh, beautiful collective consciousness. And I think we can all get tremendous amount of help from that realm. And so just opening the door to listening to these tones and remember that one of the key goals here is to take that linguistic voice in the head. Uh, you know, that most of us identify with that running stream of thoughts in our head as who we are, um, you know, our stream of consciousness. But I would remind people, remember what Michael Singer calls that running stream of thoughts in the head in his book, The Untethered Soul. He calls it your annoying roommate. And that re and, and it gets back to Jill Bolte Taylor, because look what happened to her when she was able to eliminate that linguistic brain, that little ego mind from her brain, how extraordinary the experience was. She expanded into the oneness and became one with everything with this overwhelming sense of love and connectedness. That's what happens when we leave that ego mind, the little ego voice behind. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom that can be gleaned just from opening ourselves to the universe in that way. Now, there are some, if you go to sacredacoustics.com, she does have some free training videos that actually do give you some clues as to what to do. But I think by and large, uh, I would agree, agree with you that I think the guidance can come from within when we realize going within mind is our way to go out to the universe. And we do have aids and assistance there to kind of help give us the, the tools and give us what we need. Uh, the first step, though, is turning that little ego voice in the head that would sit there and say, you're doing it all wrong or whatever, you know, uh, put that into timeout. Uh, that little ego voice in my mind is not who I am. I've developed a much richer relationship with daily, you know, an hour to a day meditation over the last decade plus uh, with that uh, kind of higher mind, that uh, primordial mind. Uh, that collective unconscious in many ways. And it's uh, uh, the same realm that we encounter in an NDE or uh, can feel in an after-death communication or a deathbed vision uh, where the loved ones come back to escort a soul over. Uh, this is all about connecting with that much more purely. And I believe we can all do that through using this kind of a tool. And the other thing I would stress is that over time, it's kind of like Karen often says, they're like training wheels. So that you find that your mental function, your, your empathic nature, your intuitive abilities, uh, your, your sense of, of being able to kind of heal yourself and others, all that improves over time. And, uh, I, I still do the tones daily because I love them. I love, uh, where they take me and what it enables for me. But I'm also certain that my kind of mental function daily in a waking state has been greatly benefited over years of, of this style of meditation. About 35 years ago, I interviewed the author of A Crack in the Cosmic Egg, Joseph Chilton Pierce, and he refers to those intuitive epiphanies, those aha experiences, as thoughts that arrive full-blown. Right. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Isn't it? As if already reasoned on a higher level, and if you're worthy open and receptive, they spill down into your awareness with a visceral sense of confirmation that 
shakes you in such a way that it's lid lifting. It's like, of course, it's so clear. The universe is one thing. There is nothing here but love. It's just, and then those who've never had such an experience might say, well, how do you know? And you have to say or find some words for saying, well, I, I don't know, but I experienced it. I, yeah. I, it wasn't reasoned out by me in any logical way. It just became so obvious. The knowing comes from personal experience. And that's why Karen and I are such major proponents of, you know, giving tools to people to help them have a profound personal experience. And that's what Sacred Acoustics is all about. I had the pleasure of meeting Joseph Chilton Pierce uh, back when I first was getting into this journey with some of my work at Monroe Institute. He was a real uh, a gem of a, a wonderful seeker and knower. He had been there and he knew exactly what he was talking about. I, I will simply point out also that many brilliant uh, scientists, artists, etc., Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Robert Louis Stevenson, they all had ways of getting into a hypnagogic state. Einstein would float around a sailboat daydreaming, staring at the sky. Uh, Edison and Stevenson would hold weights in their hands and let them drop as they were dozing off so they'd get this little hypnagogic charge. And that was their way of opening the doors of creativity of allowing the universe to gift them with tremendous insights. And there are many scientific uh, discoveries that have been made through similar kind of engagements with a hypnagogic space, with that kind of between awake and asleep uh, realm of, of uh, kind of the dream world, the meditative space. And we can all learn to use that power uh, with a regular practice of meditation, of going within, we can all come to open our minds to the same kind of gifting from the universe that some of those great uh, inventors have done. Yeah, indeed, we have to rethink the word invention. Maybe uh, Edison didn't invent anything. He simply realized it. Right. In formation. You know, it's a, a new way of looking at how the, the kind of structure of it comes to us from the universe. But it's an information. We're out of time. I wish I had hours and hours. I very much appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to make an appearance here on KPFK FM in Los Angeles. And, uh, gosh, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. I hope we can do it again in the future. My pleasure, Michael. I'd love to talk again. And people who want to keep up with uh, me, Go to eben, E-B-E-N, alexander.com. You can follow what Karen and I do at unitedinhopeandhealing.com and learn much more about the, the meditation through sacredacoustics.com. I, I want to mention that I've, I found sacred acoustics to be quite extraordinary, and I've had a lot of experience with binaural beats and light and sound machines, and I think they're a cut above. And... Uh, Again, your book, Proof of Heaven, is life-changing, and I can't wait to read Living in a Mindful Universe. Right. So best of luck to you. Thank you once again. Well, Michael, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner is heard every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. on KPFK in Los Angeles, live streaming for the world at kpfk.org and streaming on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. We're also podcast forevermore on all podcast sites. Thanks for being with us. You'll find more about me at michaelbenner.com. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner on KPFK Los Angeles. Yeah.